Amen, guys. You can go ahead and have a seat if you will. Hope you're good this morning. This is the uh, hardcore service right here. Brave the rain, always fired up. I was telling somebody the other day, I was backstage one day and um, you guys were singing. And like, it got to the point where I looked at John and I'm like, I feel like they're going to devour me when I go out there. It was like, and so this service is always fun. Not the 11's not, but you guys are always alive and ready to go and it's early, but you're still fired up. And, um, and that's always cool. So I look forward uh, to both services, but really to come in and worship with you guys too and just to be able to enjoy that. Um, we're gonna continue the series today until every person knows. Sorry, I don't have a Valentine's sermon for you today. Um, just kind of not my style. I, you know, I thought about like, I could be like, now let's open Jesus's Valentine to us. You know, but not gonna do that. We're just gonna continue going in the book of Acts, um, Acts 15. Um, and today is where we're gonna be. I'm gonna read the first 12 verses and we're gonna jump in. I wanna talk to you about something today from these verses I feel like is really, really important for us to understand and grab hold of because this is a trap that we all fall into. Some of us to varying degrees, but every single person in here deals with this and it's the performance trap. It's this tendency to drift into a legalistic way of living, a religious, legalistic, rules-based way of living that ends up leading us away from a relationship with Jesus. Um, this happens, one, because we live in a performance-based world. It happens, two, because that performance-based mindset is brought into the church. And so um, what you'll find is for a lot of people, this is why they don't want anything to do with church, is because all of their life they've just been beat down with rules and they've never really experienced the joy of Jesus. And so we're gonna look at that today. Acts chapter 15, let's read the first 12 verses. Um, we've been going through this. If you've been here the last few weeks, you kind of know where we've been, but we're going through the book of Acts. Now we're tracing, we've been through where we saw the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus died for our sin. He took the wrath of God upon himself for us so we could be set free simply by faith. By trusting in him, he sent the Holy Spirit to live in those who trust him um, and put their trust and faith in him. Um, and then we begin to live out this life. And we saw where this good news of Jesus was going to go from Jerusalem to Judea, um, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you're not familiar with all those places, basically it's like drawing rings out. Started in Jerusalem, moved out, moved out and is going to the ends of the earth. And we're really in a part now where we're seeing the gospel go to the ends. The challenge of what's happening though, is now that the gospel has moved out of Jerusalem, which was kind of the, the center of Judaism or the, the Jewish religion, what we're seeing now is a lot of Gentiles, Gentiles who are non-Jewish people who are coming to faith in Christ. Jesus, um, had sent the Spirit to them also. The Father had given them the same Holy Spirit. Um, and so there's this recognition that the Father has accepted the non-Jews the same way he's accepted the Jews by faith. But what begins to happen and what we're gonna read about in Acts 15 is that there is a sect of the Jews, there's a part of the Jews who are saying now, look, if they're really gonna be saved and if they're really gonna be part of the people of God, then there's some things they need to do in addition to um, faith in Jesus in order to be saved. 
And that may sound like, well, we don't really believe that, right? We believe we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That's what we believe, and that is true. But the, the, really the truth of it too, though, is many times we, through this performance-based mindset, begin to try to bring in things that we have to do in addition to faith in order to be saved. A lot of it is tradition. A lot of it is man-made things. A lot of it is just the way we think about it. And a lot of it is a distorted motive for pursuing God. And so we're going to read the first 12 verses. And then I'm basically just going to preach again what I just told you. Okay. So um, 15, it says certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. So listen, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. You catch that? Unless you're circumcised, according to the Customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So they're saying circumcision and then faith too will lead to your salvation, you being made right with God. Verse two, this brought Paul and Barnabas, these are the two guys we've been following, the apostle Paul, Barnabas, into sharp dispute and debate with them. So they, they know this is not right. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed alongside some other believers to go up to Jerusalem, the hub of Judaism, to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them, and much of the work God had done through them was to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But listen to this, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, these were um, like the religious leaders, they were very zealous for the rules, the law of the Jews. So it says, then some of these believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised. We saw that in verse one, but listen to this, and required to keep the law of Moses. In other words, he's saying if they really want to belong to the people of God, if they really want to be saved, then one, they need to have faith in Jesus, but then we're going to add to that faith circumcision and following and keeping the law of Moses. So then it goes on and it says, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. So this is a big deal, right? They have come together with the biggest names in Christianity, right? They have brought the big dogs together to come and begin to debate this issue. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. If you wanna see this, go back to Acts chapter 10 where Peter goes to Cornelius and preaches the gospel. You can read that, that's, that's what he's referring to. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles 
through them. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you, God, that it's living, it's active. God, I thank you today for this amazing truth we're going to talk about. That by faith in your son, by faith in Jesus, by trusting in his sacrifice and what he's done for us, that we are made right with you. We are made as we ought to be, Lord, and we are reconciled to you through the powerful works, the powerful name of Jesus. So God, open our eyes. Help us to see even areas of our life that we're not living in Christ. We're living bound by this legalistic rules mindset, Lord, that hinders us in so many ways, in our worship, in our living, in our witness for you. God, we love you and we thank you, God, for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So how many of you are at an age like me where if you don't write it down, you forget it? Anybody else? And, uh, and so for me, I, I have to keep a checklist. I keep a checklist of things. Um, if I don't have it on my list, then it's probably not going to get done because I'm probably not going to remember it. Um, I have to keep it in my phone or else I'll never remember to do it. It can be simple things like, you know, uh, pick your kids up, you know, stuff like that, that, that are easy for me to forget. And so I need these checklists to, to be able to remember things. And those are good and those are fine because it helps us to remember things without having to constantly think about it. Our mind can think through other things and, and that kind of stuff. But it's not good when we bring that mindset into our relationship with God. Because what oftentimes happens is our relationship with God just becomes another checklist. It just becomes another thing we have to do in order to get the things done that we need to get done. It becomes this laborious activity. It becomes this mundane routine where I'm just checking these things off to try to get these things done so that things will be right, so that I will be right, so that I will be accepted. And what we're looking at today is really one of those things where the Jewish people were trying to put sort of a checklist back on these believers, these Christians, these, these followers of Jesus, even though they had been set free from sin, they had, the law had been fulfilled in Christ, all these rules and things that had been given to them, even by God, these things had been fulfilled in Christ. But now some of them are saying, no, 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 we're, we're, you still got to do this plus faith if you're really gonna be a Christian. If you're really gonna belong to the people of God, faith isn't enough. We've gotta add some things to faith. And we see this a lot in church where we tell people the truth, that we tell them that your sin is forgiven. You are made right with God, not by the things that you do, but by your faith in Jesus, that by faith in Christ, your sin is removed from you as far as the East is from the West. You know, your sin is taken away. You're made right by simply believing. But then as soon as they believe, we begin to give them a checklist of things they've got to do. And we quit pointing them to Christ and we begin to say, okay, now here's this Bible that weighs 14 pounds. Read it in a year. 
right? You need to memorize this. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to, all of those are good things. Listen, we need to read. We need to pray. We ought to worship. Those are good things. Those are necessary things for life in Christ. But where we fall into a mistake is when those things become the end. They become the goal that I have done these things so now I can feel good about me and my relationship with God. And so they become the goal, they become the end, not a means to the end of experiencing God, not a means to an end of walking with Jesus, not a means to the end of once again seeing how amazing grace really is. And we fall into this legalistic trap. See, for the Jews, circumcision was a big deal. It was given to them in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the old way God related to his people. It was given to them then and it was a sign that they belonged to God, that they were God's people. But circumcision was not what made them God's people. Does that make sense? It was a sign. Think about it like a wedding ring. Like my wedding ring doesn't make me married. Like it's not like, okay, I'm married and now, oh, I'm not. Susan would not go for that. And so it, it's, it was a sign that they belonged to God. This is a sign that I am married and about the vows that I took. But this ring does not make me married. Circumcision did not make them the people of God. It was a sign that they were the people of God. But the Jews took it and it became this thing that it was like, if, if you're not circumcised and you aren't, you don't belong, you can't belong to God. And they're now beginning to put this on Christians. It talks about the law, the law with these rules or listen, the conditions of the covenant. These were the conditions, but God basically tells them through Moses, if you will follow and obey these laws I'm giving you, then I will be your God and you will be my people. It was what's called a conditional covenant. It was an agreement that had been made between God and man. The Jews, um, they said yes to this. We'll do everything you said, but see, here's the kicker. They couldn't do it all. They couldn't do it perfectly. And so the problem for them was they had this standard that was given to them that they could never maintain. And the point of God giving them the law was never to make them right with him because God knew like they're never going to keep this. I know their hearts. They're never gonna keep this law. They can't do it. The law was never given so that you and I would be righteous. The law was given to show us God's standard of righteousness and to show to us, we can't live that way. It wasn't so that the law could be our savior. It was so that the law could reveal to us that we need a savior. And so the law became this like measuring tape, right? And, and it's like God gave us this measuring tape and, and it's like, he said, look, unless you measure up to this, but think about this, this is like, this is, you know, maybe going up eight, 10 feet, right? But God's law, you might as well think about it extending forever. He's like, unless you can maintain this standard. And can you imagine coming day after day to this law and measuring yourself against it? And it says, hey, you gotta be this, this way. You gotta live up to this standard. And day after day you come and you realize, I don't live up to this standard. How frustrating is that? 
But how many Christians and people who maybe have tried church or tried Christianity, that's what they found is all they are really is they're only brought back to this standard that shows them they fall short. And this constant frustration of I can't be good enough, I can't get it right, I keep trying, but it's just a burden that, that I can't bear. This constant frustration, it, it just ends up leading us to despair. And so people walk away, never really experiencing the power of grace, the power of God's love, the joy of Jesus, or either having forgotten about it. And so I want you to understand, one, this is a dangerous trap. This is a slippery slope. The world around us tells us, if you perform, you'll be loved. If you'll perform, you'll be accepted. And so we bring that to the gospel. We bring that to our relationship with God. But that is a lie. We aren't accepted by God the way the world accepts people. God accepts us because he loves us. Why does he love us? Because he loves us. Why does he love us? Because he's love. But we fall into this legalistic trap because it's what we've been taught around us. Listen to this. Legalism is following the traditions and rules and trying to do it so well that you will be accepted. But listen, you'll never measure up. Not to God's standards. It'll always be taller. And listen, listen, we might be able to find somebody who doesn't quite get there as close as we do, but here's the truth of it. We're all so far away from it that we'll never get there in our own ability. And so we try to follow the rules. Listen, legalism is following these traditions, these rules, and trying to do it so well that God accepts me. And that's brought into the church. It's beat into our heads. But listen to this. Grace is God doing for me in me and through me what I cannot do for myself. God did for me in Christ what I cannot do. Jesus bridged that gap that is so vast and so wide between God's standard and my ability. Between God's perfection and my imperfection, Jesus bridged that, he did that for us. And then he begins to work in us as we're gonna see to begin to manifest that. And when we look at this in Acts 15.1, they're saying it's about circumcision and faith. It's about the law and faith. And what Paul and Barnabas and these apostles eventually come to is no, it is all about faith. It is all about Jesus. Legalism says that I can earn God's love through good behavior. Grace says God loved me knowing my behavior would never be good enough. Legalism says your salvation and relationship with God depends on your ability to make yourself right. Grace says your salvation and relationship with God depends on trusting that Jesus has already made you right. Legalistic righteousness or be becoming as I ought to be depends on your ability. Grace is simply given when we surrender our ability to God and what he's done. Legalism says work harder to clean your life up. But through grace, God doing for us, in us, and through us what we cannot do for ourselves, we receive the Holy Spirit who brings us to life, gives us a new heart, and makes us wonder why we ever 
thought the way we were living was life. See, legalism, here's what really fires me up about this. this legalism has robbed the church of joy and it's robbed Jesus of worship. Because it's just become a mundane thing that we do. And we don't realize this, but grace, grace isn't amazing if we have to earn it. It's no different than a paycheck. It even makes us kind of entitled. Well, God, I worked real hard for you, so you better. Grace is amazing when you realize your greatest efforts, your, your wages for your greatest efforts still deserve death, but God, knowing all of that, still gives Jesus and the Holy Spirit to give you life. But I want you to see in chapter 15, one and five, that this is a slippery slope and it may not look like circumcision for us and these kinds of things. You know what circumcision is? Just ask somebody. It may not look exactly the same, but let me tell you this. Let me tell you, it still creeps into our faith. It still tries to spy on the freedom and the joy and the love we have in Christ. I want you to understand this today, guys. We're all recovering Pharisees. We're all recovering Pharisees. Verse five says this, and some of the believers he belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up. A Pharisee was the leader of the synagogues or the Jewish places of worship. Pharisees were typically very self-righteous and this delusional mindset that somehow they were pleasing to God because they kept the law. Even though over and over the, the scripture talks about how their hearts were far from God, they just went through these motions. Jesus even made some observations about the Pharisees just in one chapter in verse 23 of the gospel of Matthew. It, he says this, he says, they don't practice what they preach. Anybody ever seen that in church? They tie up heavy loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they don't lift a finger to try to help them. Everything they do is done for other people to see. He said they clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside basically is nasty, meaning on the outside they've cleaned themselves up and they look good, but on the inside they're not right. He says they're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they're full of all kinds of dead, lifeless things. That to me, y'all, that can summarize the church in a lot of ways because legalism and rules and all of these things don't bring life. Jesus does. That's why the author of Hebrews didn't say, hey, fix your eyes on the law, fix your eyes on circumcision, fix your eyes on the rules, fix your eyes on all of the Christian things you ought to be doing. It doesn't say that. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. We're all born into this performance-based world. I mean, listen, every single one of us, and we see it. Why does Patrick Mahomes make $500 million in one contract? That's insane. Because he's possibly the best quarterback in the league, right? 
Why does Mike Trout make $400 million in one contract? Because he's probably the best baseball player there is. Why do some of the artists that we see putting out music, why do they make millions and millions and millions of dollars? Because they're the best at what they do. And we perceive that this status and this money and all the stuff that they have, we perceive that that shows they are good and they are accepted. And so we, we reward their performance but they're some of the most jacked up people you'll ever meet. So the world's acceptance doesn't bring wholeness. Jesus does. And we're all born into this system of performance and we bring that with us. And I did the same thing when I first got saved, man, for a few days, like the grace of God, that God loved me despite the place where I was in my life, it overwhelmed me. Like I cried for three days. I'm not even gonna lie to you. It overwhelmed me that God still loves me, overwhelmed me. But it wasn't very long until that love for God turned into a determination that I'm gonna get this perfect. I'm gonna work this out myself. I'm gonna make this happen. And so I started trying to obey the law and trying to live according to like, Every law. I'm not, I'm not talking about just laws in the Bible. I'm talking about, and it's not like I ever went out stealing and shooting at people. But, but like if I was in a speed zone that was 35, I went 34. And I'm not even lying. I can remember like coming down um, Savannah Avenue and make, I like literally remember like, oh, can't go, better, better leave a little buffer there. Don't want to break the law because I'm going to get this perfect. And not only, listen, not only did I put that standard on myself, I tried to put that standard on everyone around me. I remember one night, this is kind of when it all broke for me. I knew like I was losing my joy that I had in the beginning. And one night, Susan and I, we were living in Waynesboro. We're sitting at the table and I can't remember, we had like, I don't know if it's cube steak, but I do remember this. We had mashed potatoes and English peas. And we're sitting there and I'm, and I'm kind of getting on this rant, if you can imagine, this rant about how some people in the church we were attending were just going through the motions. I'm like, you know, they do this and they do that and they do this and they do that. And then Susan, she's kind of like, well, you know, Brandon, maybe they're just growing. Maybe they're really are trying. We don't really know. And I remember this. There's just the two of us. We didn't have any kids yet. I took my hand and I slammed it down on the table. I'm talking about like, wham, hard as I could hit the table. The English peas popped up off of my plate. were rolling across the table onto the floor. And it was kind of one of those moments where we looked at each other and we're like, whoa, you know what I mean? Like kind of got quiet and we we're kind of, like, and for me, that was this realization, like, Something's got to change. And I realized this, there were, I came to this, this sort of uh, fork in the road, so to speak. And I realized if I continue down the path that I'm on, then I'm gonna walk away from God because I cannot maintain this standard. This is too much for me. I can't live up to this standard that I see in the word that I see that is, who God is. And it brought me to this place where I'm either gonna walk away from God or I'm gonna surrender to his grace and finally admit, I can't do this. 
And it was such a freeing thing to come to this place where I could finally say, God, I can't do it. God, I knew I couldn't do it when I came to faith and I was so amazed by your grace, but now I've added all these things to faith and here I am, I am miserable, God. I really, Lord, all I want is Jesus. I just want to know him. I just want to be with him. I just want the life that comes in knowing him and the joy of his presence. And that was such a huge change. God put a couple of books in my life that I began to read and it began to teach me some about grace. And I just began to once again be overwhelmed with how amazing grace is. But when's the last time you were really overwhelmed by grace? When's the last time you were just like, God, how amazing is what you've done in Christ? Oh God, I realize my sin. I realized it this weekend. <laughs> God, your grace is amazing that you love me. That you love me. Because listen to me. Verse 10. Now then, this is Peter speaking. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke? that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. He's saying, listen, guys, our ancestors tried to live this out for years, hundreds of years. It was a yoke they couldn't bear. It was more than they could do. And he's like, why are you gonna try to put this same yoke that we even now can't live out on them? And I want you to hear this from me. Legalism is a burden that you will not be able to bear. It will rob you of the joy of Christ. When you begin to put your performance ahead of Jesus's performance on the cross, it will smother out the life of Christ. But if you'll begin to live amazed at the grace of God and what he's done for you, how he's working in you and what he desires to do through you. It will give you life. It will give you love. It will give you joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. If you'll just fix your eyes on Jesus and you'll just pursue him, he will work out everything else through the power of his spirit in your life. Repeated failure leads to frustration and this prolonged frustration leads to despair and it's no wonder so many people are burned out and turned off and disillusioned by the church. We've promised to give them life and all we've given them is rules. Jesus didn't say in Matthew chapter 11 verse 20, he didn't say, come to me all of you who are heavy laden, I'll give you another burden. He said, come to me, I'll give you rest. Even meaning from this religious system you exist in, I'll give you rest. I'll give you what you've always longed for, but you've never attained. In John chapter seven, verse 37, Jesus is at this feast and it said, at the, the, the last day of this feast, Jesus stood up and he says, all who are thirsty, come to me and drink. And it goes on and tells us that what he was speaking about was the Holy Spirit who would live inside of those who followed him. And he says that he would 
flow out of them like rivers of living water, an abundance of his spirit, abundance of grace, abundance of power, abundance of his presence. And, and listen, it made me think about this when I'm at home and now my, my youngest child is 10, so they can do a lot of stuff for themselves, right? I've got a 10, a 14, and an 18. And I'll be sitting there and one of them will look at me and be like, hey, you go get me some water? No. What's wrong with you? Get up and get you some water, right? I ain't got to do everything for you. You're 10 years old. You can reach the cups. Go get you some water. But I look at this, I'm like, Jesus didn't even do that, right? He didn't say, hey, if you want this living water, if you really want to be accepted, if you really want my grace, if you really want to experience the power of God's presence, go dig you a well and find you some water and work real hard and maybe one day you'll tap into it. No, he said, hey, if you're thirsty, come here. If you're thirsty, come here. I've got some living water. And listen, I'm not going to give you a little taste of it so that it kind of gets you interested. So then you'll work real hard for the rest of it. He says, no, I'm going to pour this living water out on you. And if you'll abide in me, I'm going to abide in you. And I'm going to pour this into your life until it overflows and until something wells up inside of you and my presence is working in you so much so that you look back in a matter of time and you go, I don't even know who that person was. I don't even know why I wanted to be that person. I remember um, like after I got saved, I would see people doing the things that I used to love to do. And I was kind of like, that was fun. And Jesus, the experience of Christ and his presence is so much greater than, than what people can ever think or imagine. And he promises to give us this living water, not a little bit, but a lot. I wanna answer this question real quick. If it's not, if it's not rules, then how does my living change? Like, what changes? What happens? Because certainly we're called to live a different life. We're called to live a holy life. We're called to live a righteous life. How does that happen? And even in saying that, it almost feels like then there can become like, it's like Jesus and he calls us to drink, woo! But he calls us to live righteous, oh. You know, and it can kind of feel like that feel heavy. But I want you to look at this. If you'll turn with me to the book of Titus, you'll have to go through Acts and Romans and Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st uh, and 2nd Timothy, and then you'll come to Titus. I think I got those right. I want to begin reading in chapter one, verse 11. Now, Titus was one of Paul's, so to speak, protégés. Paul, he was one of Paul's right-hand men, um, the apostle Paul, who we read about a lot in Acts. And so this is a letter to Titus and some encouragement to Titus as he's helping lead the churches that God has used them to establish. And listen to this. It says in verse 11, it says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches, all right? So look, now, I'm not an English major. I, I barely speak it well. But he says, for the grace of God, and then he says, it teaches. So he's referring to grace. 
He's saying grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us or to buy us back from the clutches of the evil one, from the sin and death that sin caused, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Listen to that, eager to do what is good. What is eager? Eager is this motivation. I want this. I want to do this. He says we're eager to do what is good. But where does that come from? It comes from grace. He says it's grace that teaches us to say no. And he says this. He says grace has appeared to all men. How did grace appear? Isn't grace a concept? Isn't grace something you can't put your hands on and kind of touch and feel? How did it appear? See, Paul's personifying grace in the person of Jesus. Jesus came full of grace and truth. And he's saying, now that grace has appeared, it teaches us. Now that Jesus has appeared, he teaches us. How does he teach us? By our abiding, by his presence in our life, by the work of the Holy Spirit still doing for us, in us, and through us what we can't do for ourselves. He said, grace teaches us this because it has appeared in Christ. Now we know. In other words, we have seen him. We have beheld his beauty. We know who he is. We've seen grace. We've experienced grace and this grace continues. And he's saying, Jesus will teach you to say no to ungodliness. How? By just abiding, by walking, by living in him. How do I do that? Through the word, through prayer, through worship, yes, but not as those things as an end, but as a means to the end of spending that time with Christ. As a means to experience and again is grace. Listen, as a means to once again seeing the good news, to be reminded of who I am apart from him, to be reminded of what he's done for me on the cross to be reminded of who I've now become in him and to once again experience, once again see in the scriptures, in worship, in all these other things, Christ portrayed as crucified, the good news for mankind. Christ raised from the dead, the good news for mankind. And then it even goes on and says, that grace has appeared. But in verse 13, he says this, while we await or wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so here's, here's the key to it. We have seen the appearing of grace in Christ. And he says, now we kind of live in this in-between. We live between his first appearing and his second appearing. And he's saying, this is our motivation. 
He's like, we have seen the grace of Jesus and we have tasted the Holy Spirit and it's this foretaste of heaven and what will be, but I'm gonna live my life fixed on Christ because I know that this is not the only appearing. One day he's gonna come back and I'm gonna go and I'll be with him forever. And so I live not only with this remembrance of his first appearing, but with this expectation of his second appearing. And so I don't get caught up and trapped in the world and even in the performance of the world. I live with this expectation that one day he's coming and all things will be made right. I don't have to make them right. All I got to do is live with my eyes on him. It's our revelation of Jesus. Listen to this, guys. It's our revelation of Jesus and our relationship with Jesus that makes us eager to do good. Not working for acceptance, it's working from acceptance. It's this revelation, this understanding of Christ, his grace, the spirit in me that when I was parched and thirsty and I had no idea where to find water, Jesus just said, come and drink. When we read scripture and pray and worship, listen, we're remembering we're revisiting this epiphany. That's what the word for um, uh, appear literally is. It's an epiphany. It's an eye-opening. A lot of times the Greeks would use it for the, the, the dawn when the sun would appear. And he's saying, now the sun has appeared. And we live with this epiphany in mind, this revelation of Christ. And we worship and read scripture and pray and we're in community and we're just talking about Jesus and the goodness of God, then what begins to happen, man, is we have that epiphany again because you'll never exhaust it. And we revisit this epiphany and we look forward to the next epiphany, the next appearing. And we'll join him, literally, like join him face to face forever. We're going to sing a song that talks about God making dead things alive. How God can take a grave and turn it into a garden, something that was dead to something that was living. And that's the good news of the gospel for us. And we're going to sing this song. I want you to really, I want you to not just sing, but I want you to See the words. I want you to experience again the epiphany of who Jesus is, what he's done, and who we are in him. And my prayer for you is that the spirit in you is stirred. Again, that you come this morning, maybe literally come up here to pray. And you say, God, I'm here, I'm thirsty. I'm not thirsty for something else to do. I'm thirsty for someone to know the living water that only Jesus gives. So Father, we thank you this morning for your truth and for your word and for your goodness. Lord, I pray even right now, Lord, as we come to you and we sing, Lord, that God, you would be exalted that God, you would be lifted high. 
Lord, we don't come to you right now to perform. We come to you to celebrate who you are and what you've done. We come to you, God, because we are people who need to drink of the living water that only Jesus has for us. God, we love you in Jesus' name.